John Henry Cole is the captain. Boss man, do you ever pray? Well, if I miss this deal, let this hammer get away. Mara be your barren day. Lord, Lord. Mara be your barren day. This is on mass, bringing together stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I'm your host, Liz Medina. You are listening to Episode 8, titled, In This Area, I Was Stuck, featuring the story of Paul Cook. In the previous episode, we heard the story of Gampo, an artist and granite carver whose talent and energy keep the tradition of granite carving alive in Barrie. In this episode, we will hear the story of a retired academic advisor who found working in a liberal arts college to be more precarious than Gampo's experience in the granite industry. Paul worked hard, earned multiple degrees, and is wildly intelligent. And yet, the Great Recession marked a paradigm shift into a world that no longer values his talent for creative and independent thought. We are now in a world where higher ed equals job training and where the majority of jobs available are entry-level service jobs. The primary reason students go to college now is to secure a better job, according to the American Freshman Survey. Before the Great Recession, the primary reason was to learn about something one found interesting. Paul went to college in 1974. He studied what was interesting to him, which, broadly, were the humanities and, specifically, political science. He eventually went on to work at Landmark College, an institution that specializes in making higher education accessible to those with learning disabilities. They offer mostly humanities degrees. Paul loves the humanities because they teach us how to think critically and creatively. They teach us about different ideas, histories, cultures, societies, all of which is fundamental to progress and human development. After all, if we want to live in a just democratic society, we all need to know how to understand and evaluate ideas, values, and policies. The humanities liberate minds and societies. But, unfortunately, since the recession, enrollment in many humanities programs has decreased by almost 50%. We live in a precarious U.S. economy with threadbare welfare support. Therefore, it is no surprise that our opinions of what should be studied has been increasingly tied to employment outcomes. I came from a working-class family. For me, getting a good middle-class job was the only legitimate reason to go and get a degree. The irony is that even those who managed to graduate from college, despite the increasing financial obstacles, enter an economy with low and stagnant wages for almost all jobs. This is a painful reality for the working class, and not just in economic terms. Sociologist Richard Sennett and Jonathan Cobb wrote about the emotional cost of believing we live in a meritocracy when, in fact, we don't. 
Most of us have experienced the pain of not getting anywhere, even after going back to school, even after putting in more hours, even after sacrificing time with our family, friends, and hobbies. Despite our best efforts, we stay right where we are on the social ladder, or worse, fall off of it. And student debt is a major factor in pushing more of us over the edge. The average student debt in 2019 is about $33,000. Paul courageously shared his story about finding himself in an entry-level job like the ones he had growing up, despite having multiple degrees. After he was laid off at Landmark College, he didn't know where to go. There weren't as many opportunities as there were when he was growing up in Barrie during the 70s. For better or worse, he was stuck in Barrie and had to find some kind of work in the area to tie him over until he qualified for Social Security benefits. He managed to find work as a retail merchandiser. Those are the people who make sure our stores are stocked not only so we can have the things we need, but so we can easily find them. Our shopping experiences are easier because of their hard work. In this job and others, Paul found ways to bring humanity into the workplace, despite the inhumanity of businesses always putting profits first. I recorded Paul's story in 2017. His story will be performed by Reverend Earl Cooperkamp. My last job was as a retail merchandiser. The title sounds far more impressive than it actually is. It was basically doing all the work that Dollar General didn't want to pay its people to do. That was right here in central Vermont. Well, I was based out of Barrie, but I went everywhere. I went as far as Massachusetts and up to northern New Hampshire. I was technically an employee, but the way they operate, you basically are on your own, unless it's a big job where they have multiple people coming in from all over for a big reset. Most of the time, you're on your own, and you could schedule whatever day you wanted to go in, as long as it was by the deadline. They give you a start date for the project and the end date. You've got to get it done somewhere in there. So you try to set yourself up a route that makes sense. You'd have to figure out, okay, what's the best way to get from here to there to there to there? Save myself as much time and gas as possible. Most of our work was either in family dollars or dollar generals. What we did is we went in and we would do inventories for specific companies to check the stock levels of their products in these different stores. We would do resets of the way the store was set up. We would rearrange all the toilet paper or something like that. Most of the people who worked at the dollar generals were glad to see us because they were like, well, that's one less thing I have to do. The other side of it, with some of them felt like we were taking hours away from them. Basically, I'd start from home with a list of the places and the jobs that I needed to get done 
and I'd have all the paperwork printed out. I'd go to the first store I was going to do. I'd work down through the projects I had to do there. Finish that off, get a sign off from the manager, take pictures of it, head to the next door. Then I'd get home and I'd have to enter everything in the computer. I'd have to log it all in, send photos to go along with it, the whole usual bureaucratic stuff. That would be how my day would end, doing all the paperwork. Sometimes it took me longer to do the paperwork than it did to do the work. There were issues that would come up. Sometimes the stuff wouldn't be at the store, or the manager would say, I've got other stuff going on here. I don't want you doing it today. You'd have to reschedule for another day. Every day was different. Every day was a different sort of challenge. It didn't pay very well, because basically, I think, when I finally got done, I was making $13 an hour. I was paying for my own gas, I could take the deduction for the mileage, the federal deduction on my taxes, but you didn't make enough to even do that because it wasn't enough income there to take the deduction. Luckily, I had a very small economical car. The hours varied so much from week to week and month to month. Essentially, from about the middle of December to the middle of January, there was no work at all. We were basically dumped but you couldn't collect unemployment because you didn't have a guaranteed number of hours. Then sometimes you'd be crazy busy one week and then have five hours the next week. That was the most frustrating part, was that there was no consistency to it. Most of the people doing it were not happy to be doing it. Most of the people were there because through one situation or another, they were stuck and they couldn't find anything else. In this area, I was stuck. There's not a lot of work compared to the work that was available when I was growing up in Barrie. Where the Wall Street complex is in Barrie, that was all one big plant. They manufactured electronic circuits, capacitors, Sprague Electric owned it, and it was all one big plant there. There were three shifts one could work at that plant, so there were a lot of jobs. Then up on top of Quarry Hill, there was Malted Mills, which was a big, I don't even know exactly what they made there, but it was some kind of cloth. Of course, there was Bombardier shortly after I graduated, and of course, all the granite sheds. You could walk in with a high school education and have a job for life at a granite shed. But now, there's not much work around here anymore. The job itself wasn't a bad job, but I had gone to school to be working in a professional capacity in higher education. It was very frustrating for me to be doing this low-level job because that's all you could get around here. 
had the experience, I had the education, but nobody was interested in hiring me. The time frame of all this is important because I was working as a full-time transfer services advisor at Landmark College in Putney, Vermont. I don't know if you're familiar with Landmark. It's a small private school that has only a student population of about 500, and it's for students with learning disabilities. It's a very specialized population with a very, very low faculty-to-student ratio, among the lowest in the country. Being an advisor with students at Landmark was one of the most rewarding things without a doubt, because these students were the ones who had struggled their whole life, and they still wanted to achieve, despite how hard it was for them to learn. They still wanted to go ahead and do it. This is my favorite story of all my working years. I was working with this young man who had a serious speech impediment and learning disabilities. But he was a brilliant poet and writer, a lot going inside the head while difficult to get it out. I worked with this young man for almost two years. Well, he ended up getting into a great school's creative writing program, West Virginia Wesleyan. Great school. At Landmark at graduation, every student gets a chance to give a little speech, a little five-minute or shorter speech. And I didn't think he was going to do it, not with a speech impediment. Well, he got up and he gave a speech. And at the end he said, and I personally want to thank my advisor, Paul Cook. And the tears were streaming down my face. I mean, for all that I did in other careers and everything, I touched someone. I did something right in my working life for this one kid, and it was all worth it. And that's the kind of way that place affected me. I loved working with the students and helping them figure out what the right move was for the next place. bottom fell out of the stock market in 2008. Most of the students that were already there were able to continue. Their parents had enough to keep going. But in the fall of 2010, the cumulative effect started to kick in, and they fell short in their recruiting goals. It's the most expensive two-year college in the country, $50,000 a year tuition. Because they were completely tuition-dependent, they had to let people go. There was over a $1 million shortfall for a little college like that. And I was the last one who had been hired in my department. So at age 54, I was cast out into the working world again, which was a major issue. Nobody wanted to hire anybody who's approaching retirement age. And so I did whatever I could do. That's when I started doing the retail merchandising. I did what I had to do, but it was very depressing. I had done all the work to get to the point where I wouldn't be doing this type of physical work anymore. At my age, my body was starting to rebel against doing that kind of thing. It was very frustrating for me to have to keep dealing with this. The basic problem was that the entire academic world was collapsing 
they were all retracting rather than expanding. Academic advisors were being fired rather than hired because the colleges were all trying to save money wherever they could. That was where things really fell apart. Liberal arts and social sciences are my love, and it drives me crazy to see people disparaging them, saying that you can't get a job with them. The only reason you can't get a job is because the employers are too narrow-minded to see what the value of that education is. They want people who are trained for a job. They don't want people who are educated. The funny thing is, though, when you read about this whole situation, the CEOs are all saying, we want people in our management who are capable of creative thinking. We want people with a broad educational base. In other words, liberal arts and social sciences people. But you talk to people in human resources and the hiring managers and they say, no, we want people with technical expertise. That's the biggest change that I've seen during my lifetime is that willingness of employers to train employees. They want people who'll just come in and plug in they don't want to train anybody in their business. They don't want to take anybody who doesn't fit their perfect description. I think that this is leading to the whole movement towards science, technology, engineering, and math, because that's what the people who are doing the hiring want. They want technocrats. They don't want someone who's capable of thinking on their own. Where that leaves people like me, who have a broad education and whose best work comes when we deal with people, it leaves people like me completely out in the cold because nobody wants to hear from us anymore. The thing that's changed in Barrie is very similar to what's changed all over the country. In the 1950s, some authors of management textbooks started putting this idea in that the responsibility of a corporate was to the stockholders. That was a primary reason for a corporate to exist, is to pay dividends to the stockholders. It was the beginning of the end for American capitalism. It all comes back to that basic philosophy at the corporate level, which is, we're here to provide the stockholders with income. That's the purpose of the corporate. Versus a hundred years ago, it was, we are here as a corporate to provide employment for people, to produce a good product, and to make a profit that's reasonable and sustainable. It doesn't come into it anymore. The reasonable and sustainable part doesn't come into it. What makes work meaningful for me is the relationships that you have with the people that you're working with. You can have the most awful drudgery of a job, but if you're working with people that you enjoy spending time with, and you feel like you're all in it together, then it's a joyful thing. One of the worst jobs I had was when I had this horrible boss. It was a terrible job. We were cleaning kitchens at IBM, and I was the second shift manager. The IBM contract says that you have to have a non-working manager on-premises at all times. So I was the non-working manager. I wasn't supposed to work at all. Well, when things got rough and my guys fell behind, I would jump in and the IBM guy would come over and say, oh, you're not supposed to be working. 
I said, well, my guys have got to get the job done, or you'll give them hell for not getting the job done. So I'm stepping in to help them. One thing that happened during that time was one of our employees, he lived on the wrong side of the tracks and had been kind of in and out of trouble for a lot of his life. Well, he went to a sleazy hotel up in Swanton to buy a $20 bag of pot. Someone stabbed him over the deal, he died. I got a call from his widow who also worked with us and she said, he always said that you were the only employer who had ever treated him well. I just thought, that's why I was there. That's why I had that job, because at least somebody treated this guy well once in his life. I always tried to do that. I always tried to be fair and straightforward. Sure, sometimes it got me in trouble with the people above who weren't necessarily seeing things that way. But my view is that when all is said and done in this life, it's not going to make a difference what you did. It's not going to make a difference how much money you made. If there is a heaven, and I'm not convinced there is, but if there is a heaven, when you get there, they're going to judge you on how you treated your fellow man, how you treated people that were in a position worse than yours. That's the way I look at it. Reverend Earl Cooperkamp is the pastor of the Church of the Good Shepherd in Barrie, Vermont. He is a leader for social and economic justice, lending his voice, spirit, and energy to many local and national organizations. He is the board president of Vermont Interfaith Action. He has also been vocal and active with the Vermont chapter of the Poor People's Campaign, the Vermont Workers' Center, Migrant Justice, and more. After performing Paul's story, Earl connected their remarkable experiences to larger issues in our late capitalist society. It's the people you work with, not so much the work that you're doing. Uh, the, the work's always important for whatever you're trying to accomplish, but those relationships really make all the difference and the joy that you find in them. And sometimes you've got to deal with difficult situations. And he really saw himself as somebody who can stick up for people when they're in a difficult place. Uh, who's going to advocate for them. Even, he says, uh, you know, sometimes the people above me, the bosses, they didn't quite get it, but that's why I was there. And uh, then at the very end, he really has that sense that, um, you know, no matter what you've done, you know, what really makes a difference is the people you've worked with and how you've treated them. Have you been there with kindness? Have you been there with compassion and empathy? Have you been there with justice? And I think that's... Uh, you know, just such a crucial uh, discovery in, in his story. I think as he's telling the story and reflecting back over his working life, those are the values that really come out to him in the telling of the story. I'm not sure that he'd ever so consciously been aware of it before, but when he does tell that story, then it becomes much more obvious and explicit for him. As a pastor, um, you know, to, the, you know, I can't really empirically measure any difference I make, but quanti or qualitatively, how have people begun to find the ways that they can live their lives in a freer way, in a more just way, in a deeper way in relating to each other? 
And that's what I feel is so important. That's what my religious faith really uh, says. Uh, Jesus broke it down into two commandments. Um, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And quite frankly, it's in that loving your neighbor as yourself, that's how we show the love of God. And that's difficult to do many times, but uh, that's what we keep striving for. And I think that's uh, you know, the, both the heart of my religious faith, I think that's what I really resonated with in Paul's story, uh, that he really had that sense of treating other people with respect, with dignity, treating other people in a way that you really like being around them. That makes all the difference for him. How do we form community together? How can we form relationships that have integrity, that treat each other in the fullness and the depth of who we are? You know, from my religious faith, who God has really created us to be. It's it's interesting in his story uh, because he does have a sense of the difficult dynamics, especially in American capitalism and especially in late day American capitalism. I feel there's an implicit understanding of uh, the beginnings of a class structure in his mind, uh, and he's lived his life and done his work. Uh, literally done his uh, academic work, followed his passions in uh, liberal arts and uh, social sciences in order to really help other people. And then he saw how, unfortunately, the larger economic factors, uh, especially with the the recession, the stock market crashes, that sort of thing, and uh, the maldistribution of uh, wealth and income, how that really tore up his plan. Um, and put him in a place where he didn't really want to be and didn't think he really should be anymore, and re really he shouldn't. In very tenuous sorts of ways, he realizes, uh, yeah, the bosses are looking out simply for uh, their, their own class and for the uh, class benefit of others. And, but uh, th there's not a real explicit understanding there. And I think he's living in that, uh, I think that really leads to a lot of the frustration that he feels as well. Uh, and he does you know, have a, a very good right to that frustration. He'd played the game the way you're supposed to play it. He'd done what he was supposed to do. He'd worked hard for it. And yet the rug was pulled out from under him by a very unfair economy that he knows is out there, but that he doesn't explicitly, um, explicitly rebel against. My, my call to be a pastor, uh, which you know came to me, uh, at, you know, really fairly early age, my early teenage years. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the church is it's kind of outside of the economy. It's a um, different kind of an organization, and especially it's an organization where we come together around values, around those religious values, uh, those values of what is morally right in the world, and how do we move the world more to embody those uh, those values has very little to do, almost nothing to do with profit and loss and that sort of thing. Uh, being a voluntary organization, we do have to pull the money together to keep the institutional part you know, functioning. Uh, but one, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that it's one of the few organizations uh, within our capitalist economy that operates on the margins of a capitalist economy. Now, many churches, uh, and especially because uh, the ideology of American capitalism is so deep, uh, nowadays, of course, we're moving into churches where there's the prosperity gospel and the mega churches. Uh, and uh, 
especially where there's not a critique of uh, of capitalism, not a critique of an economy that uh, enriches so few at the expense of uh, literally uh, taking the wealth away from so many. I'm always uh, quite fond of uh, the fourth century theologian, uh, St. John Chrysostom, uh, who uh, said uh, sometime during the fourth century, uh, if somebody's rich, that means somebody got robbed. And so we've had that kind of critique in the church for a long time now, and yet the churches can be as captivated by our society as any other institution. But there is also a um, a long uh, history, and I think a very uh, good subversive history, of being the critique of the society, uh, being the critique especially of a society that is trying to enslave people. And that's where, uh, at least coming out of our uh, roots out of the uh, Hebrew tradition, uh, the Exodus, uh, that's the first recorded labor strike in history. That's where the, the Hebrew people said, uh, we're not working for Pharaoh anymore. We're going to go take our labor and work for somebody else. Uh, and in that, uh, that kind of first recorded labor action, after they'd gone through a assembly line speed up where they said, oh, you got to make bricks without straw and that sort of thing, it's a move towards freedom. It's a move towards how do we found a society which uh, is founded on a principle where all are going to be contributing equally and all are going to be benefiting equally uh, in a free way, learning to live together in that equity, learning to live together in that kind of just society. It's been a long-term project, of course. We're still going after this millennia after millennia, but that's uh, what's really important here. And that's where uh, I resonate you know, deeply with Paul's story. Uh, how do we form those relationships of equity, of treating each other with dignity and respect, and ultimately even finding that joy in the work that we do? I, I did a lot of work um, uh, when I was in New York with uh, Occupy Wall Street when that happened. And uh, the Occupy movement, uh, it might not have accomplished all that much, but it accomplished something great, was it made us all very aware that we're the 99% and that there is a 1%. That was not part of our understanding. That was not part of our common dialogue. Nowadays, though, you say 99% and everybody says, I get that. Yeah, I know what that is. And you say the 1% and people go like, yeah, that's wrong. And so uh, that, 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 that to me was, uh, you know, that, there at the, uh, Occupy, um, it really was that sense of, you know, potentially this might be what the kingdom of God looks like, uh, that uh, you've got all these people coming together, sharing out of this abundance, really ready to find a way to make a society where all are going to be valued equally, where all are going to be taken care of, where we can find in that common pursuit of justice the real joy that we have in living together and being fully human. Paul's story really brought to me that, that sense of the hidden injuries of class, that, and hidden because we don't talk about them, uh, hidden because we're not given the language not given um, even the vision uh, to see them. And yet they are there and they are so real and so deep and so painful. And you hear that in his story, those hidden injuries of class. And that, that he had really tried to find the way, you know, play by the rules, get a good education, you know, 
aim for those places that you know you, you can take the gifts that you've been given, really develop them, and share them with others. And as much as that was, you know, he, he accomplished so much, that was taken away from him because of those hidden injuries, because of that uh, system that will not value those. It is built on uh, the creation of wealth for the wealthy, the robbery of those who have nothing. And um, and so those hidden injuries are deep. And you, you hear the pain in his story. You hear the the you know, real true frustration, even in a very deep level, the anger there. Um, and how we make those things, take that what is invisible and make those much more visible. How we take what is hidden uh, out of that... Uh, uh, out of that realm and make it so that we see it. Uh, one of my uh, philosophy of religion professors at seminary, Professor Cornell West, uh, used to talk about uh, uh, these uh, crypto proclivities. Uh, and there, there is a, a crypto, uh, you know, keeping it secret, keeping it hidden, keeping it walled off. A um, little bit like um, in The Wizard of Oz, where uh, The Wizard of Oz says, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Well, that's exactly where we want to pay attention to. Reveal that, uh, uh, pull that curtain back. Then we can begin to see what is it that we need to change, how it is that we can make the fundamental change in our society so that the rich don't keep getting richer and those who have even nothing, even that's taken away from and um, so that, that's why I think, uh, you know, the, the story was so, so important to me. And, yeah, you know, but because those, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, Richard Sennett said in his book uh, or, you know, in the title, uh, you know, throughout the book, though, because it's so hidden from us, it makes it almost impossible to speak about. We, we don't even have that language for it. At least in some of the earlier jobs that he had, and then the job uh, where he was at uh, Landmark, he found ways, without having that critique of the system, to still find the fulfillment, to still find those relationships, the people who he enjoyed spending time with, the people who, no matter what the actual job was, no matter what the actual uh, goods and services being developed or being passed along were, uh, there, there was joy in those relationships. In uh, these changes in the new economy, though, it's yeah, it's kind of everyone for themselves. And you're out there, and you're not really for yourself. What you're doing is uh, you're being yeah, mightily exploited in you know some of the worst ways as a you know contractor or a subcontractor, so that nothing is um, is guaranteed. He's out there do, doing the work. Uh, literally for uh, for companies and being so undercompensated, being so underappreciated, and being so, quite frankly, overmanaged as well, which he's very aware of. Spend more time doing the paperwork than I did doing the actual job. Uh, you know, And that's the way that I think, uh, unfortunately, just literally is soul-draining. And he sees that, uh, and he's experienced that, and he is so frustrated by that. And Rightly so. How do you think about class? How did the Great Recession affect you? 
Do you relate to Paul's story? How do you bring your humanity to your workplace? Have you studied the humanities? If so, why? Let's keep the conversation going. You can post your stories on our Facebook page, send us a tweet at Podcast, or email us at onmasspodcast at gmail.com. That's E-N-M-A-S-S-E podcast. For the next episode, we will hear the story of a high school librarian named Christine. Christine's mind was enlivened by a humanities course she took while pursuing an education degree as a single working mother. Moreover, her family has been living and working in Vermont for generations, long before the waves of immigrants who came to work in Barry's booming granite industry in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Indeed, her ancestry goes all the way back to the first people in Vermont, the Abenaki. Thank you for listening. We have additional reading materials, archive footage, and show notes on our website. While there, you can give us feedback or suggestions for the next season. This is an independently produced show. I receive support from you, my listeners. If you like this show, go to onmasspodcast.com slash donate to show your support. Special thanks to our performer, Reverend Earl Cooperkamp, and our storyteller, Paul Cook, for this episode. The song, John Henry, at the beginning of our show is from the Alan Lomax Collection at the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress, used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. I'm Liz Medina. This is On Mass, bringing you stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I may not never come back